Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Andrew Hunter-Murray, James Harkin, and Anna Tashinsky. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that... In the 1920 Winter Olympics, U.S. skater Teresa Weld was the only woman in the figure skating who performed jumps. But she was marked down every time she did because her skirt rose above her knees, which was considered too scandalous. Mm. Did she have pants on? (laughs) You can't tell if a skirt rises above the knees. Depends how long the pants are. Yeah, possibly Uh, they could be like bloomers. Yeah, they did wear pants down to the knees back then. So it sounds very sexy, James. Oh, yeah. And clearly it was at the time. Yeah, it depends when when about she wore. If she wore what she was wearing then... Yeah. Now in the yeah. Winter Olympics, like um, just to show behind the curtain, we're actually <laughs> recording this when the Winter Olympics is on, <laughs> and you're going to hear this in the spring. But so, sounds like she was showing people behind the curtain, yeah, of her uh, dress. Yeah, 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 yes. yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Andy's drunk, just so everyone knows. <laughs> Um, but yeah, she would have worn a skirt that was kind of round the ankles at the time because that's the way that women... She wouldn't have worn skirt. her skirt round her ankles. She would have worn a skirt. That does lose your points, actually, yeah. <laughs> it, went, it was round her ankles, but also round her calves and her knees and her thighs and her bum. Yes, and that is the normal way of describing a full-length skirt. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, this is the way that basically until the 20s and 30s, uh, women figure skaters would wear long dresses. That's amazing. Uh, and it was only when a very famous skater called Sonia Haney came along. Uh, she was only 11 when she started to compete. And because she was a child, she could get away with wearing like children's clothes. Right. Um, Sorry, I thought she'd get away with wearing much sexier stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, she didn't have to wear full adult long, right, 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 long right, dresses. Right. Uh, and she could do these amazing jumps and then all of the adult um, skaters had to wear short skirts so that they could keep up with her amazing skills. So mm. what was the skating like? If Teresa World was the only yeah. person doing jumps, what were the others doing in their show-off Well, skating? it's called figure skating, so they were doing figures mostly. Uh, like carving out shapes in the ice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not so much carving out so that you could then pull it out and there's a shape there. <laughs> it was... The last person always fell through, didn't they? Once you connected the lines. Yeah, exactly. So what you would do is you would do the shapes of a figure of eight or at the very start of figure skating, someone would shout out what figure they wanted you to do. So they'd shout out you know, snowman, and then you'd have to do a shape of a so snowman, cool. and then they'd shout out something else, and you'd have to do that. That's really cool. Um, but yeah. really, in the olden days, figure skating, especially for women, wasn't about the jumps. It was about doing something graceful, doing lots of shapes and stuff like that. And then when um, this woman came in, um, Teresa Weld, she was the first to do the jumps, and then before long, everyone was doing jumps, and now they're doing kick-ass jumps. Yeah, mm. and the jumps sort of took over in a way because in television terms, drawing these circles into the ice wasn't as televisual for the Olympics. So it'd usually be 60% or so of the mark that you would yeah. get was for the figures that you were creating in the ice. And they just sort of thought, that's a it bit does, crap. It sounds incredible, the process, because yeah. um, it was it was ended about 30 years ago, wasn't it? They stopped having actual figures. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I read a bit about that. And the judging uh, took such a long time. So there were 41 different figures at the start of it which you would have to be able to master but the judges the judges would examine the skating 
three times, as in they examined the shapes on the ice. They would get down on their stomachs like detectives to tell if there, you know, if there was a slight variation in the line. Like or detectives. Wow. It was. It was genuine. It was like <laughs> detectives get was, on their stomachs. It was like it was scenes. like forensics. They what they really... used to do, they would skate the shape of a dead body, wouldn't they, <laughs> on the ice? That was figure thirty-seven. Yeah, yeah. No, it would. Apparently, the judging could last up to eight hours. Which what? Just sounds, oh I read an article from the Der Spiegel, the German thing, and it yeah. was saying this is. It was from the eighties, and it, just before it ended, and it was like this is so boring. There was um, a guy called George Anderson who wrote a skating book in the eighteen sixties, uh, and he wrote that after the shamrock, a one foot figure requiring three turns and two changes of edge, the acme of female accomplishment has now been reached. Wow. So he's like, once you've done the shamrock, there's literally nothing better than that. It's true. Wow. Downhill ever since. Yeah. All these <laughs> no, quintuple spins. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, one of the early guys who sort of turned figure skating into the sort of art that it is now was a guy called Jackson Haynes. Uh, he was from New York, born in the 1840s. And he started, he was the person who kind of turned it into more of a, a dance. You know, he was a he was trained in ballet and um, he, he took, popular dances like the waltz and he turned that into what you would do on the ice and he did this in america and they hated it there so he came over to europe and um, he started performing it here and they loved it here and he performed to royalty um but i've been reading into banned things uh that would get you deducted points or that you're not allowed to do at all Uh, one of the things in modern times is you're not allowed same-sex couples when you do olympic uh, or even any sort of official Mm. um skating and it turns out that the very first pairing, which is with Jackson Haynes, was a same-sex couple. Um, was it? Yeah. Well, he was dancing with another guy. Yeah, he was dancing with another guy. It was in Vienna. It was called Franz Belazzi. And they were the first ever couple. And he's held up, actually, as a result, as a sort of LGBT pioneer. Is he, are we sure they weren't doing a same-sex couple just because it was so regressive that women weren't allowed to do figure skating? Was it that they were a... <laughs> no, progressive, I think... progressive. <laughs> you know, at a certain point in the circle, they're the same. Uh, that's that's possible although he is he's sort of been embraced by the community as sort of being progressive um wow. was it the tango okay. that was also like that originally Just tango really? was only All male. Men. yeah there was one no. dance i can't remember Maybe. whether it was flamenco or tango or but there was a huge dance craze which was men mm-hmm. only that we think of as uh, a mixed sex dance these days right it's classically meant to be that yeah i should say as well that haynes wasn't he was dressed as a bear at the time so oh, it wasn't was he? yeah it wasn't strictly um two men dancing together i think well, that is still strictly <laughs> <laughs> well he was yeah i mean if only strictly was like that dad do you watch the masked singer and you go well obviously it's, a, it's an actual robot buddy i mean i don't know what they're talking about celebrities this is clearly a big pile of donuts i'm afraid you are disqualified it's a human only, human only sorry oh, um, um, so women women skating was a kind of a thing or women competing anyway in figure skating and it was actually because of the clothes these long dresses that they weren't allowed to take part in the world championships so there was basically only men who entered figure skating contests for ages and it just wasn't really didn't occur to people that a woman might enter so they didn't ban it and then this amazing skater called Madge Sires entered in 1902 the world figure skating championships and she got silver and there was lots of reports saying uh, she should have got gold and actually the winner was a guy called Ulrich Salko and he offered her his gold medal because he wow. said, uh, I think you were actually the deserving winner. Huh. You were better than I was. But anyway, then the judges were like, oh, bummer. Like, we weren't supposed to have women in this. What are we going to do? And so they went through all the problems with having women figure skate. And they basically said it was things like 
the problem with it is that a judge might judge a girl on how much he's attracted to her rather than how good she is at skating. There's definitely a problem with the female skater rather than with the judges there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Get, get her off the ice. But the other thing was that because their dresses are so long, you can't see their feet. So they could be doing anything under there. They could oh. be cheating. They could have five feet. <laughs> oh, they could have a child. Motor, they could yeah. have a child under... Yeah, yeah. They like, could have a snowmobile. Yes, <laughs> exactly. What you think is like sneaking into a cinema where it's sort of... Well, kids it could be three, on top three of kids in a coat. Yeah. yeah, three kids in a coat, and they can't let that kind of thing get through. And so, to be fair to Mad, she did say, "Well, I'm very happy to wear a shorter skirt," but then obviously she couldn't do that either. So it was really uh, rock and a hard place. Right. Although while we're on uh, men and women skating, the patron saint of figure skating is a woman, mm-hmm. Saint Lidwina. You heard really? of her? No. She yeah. was a Dutch teenager because you know there are lots of um, canals and things in the Netherlands, and yep. they often freeze open. There's lots of skating happens on them, and I think this was in the 13th century. Anyway, she was skating. She fell. She broke her leg, and she never recovered. And no. as a result, she's the patron saint of figure skating. Right. Not completely sure why. Right. Um, <laughs> when was she around? 13th, like a long time ago, wow. several hundred years ago. Yeah. And it was. It sounds quite stressful. There aren't. They think she might have had something that we recognise as a modern condition today maybe the first ever case of MS but also the saintly accounts are so strange and exaggerated it's kind of hard to diagnose huh. so for example large pieces of her body fell off blood poured from her mouth ears and nose oh. she shed bones skin and part of her intestines and her parents kept them in a vase and they that's gave that's not off- MS <laughs> no, no. Yeah, well, and they gave off an incredible the walking dead what you're describing <laughs> her parents kept these bits of her body in a vase and they gave off a sweet odour so they knew she was holy oh, the odour of sanctity oh, yeah right. exactly so it's holy anyway so wait is she still alive while this is happening yeah yeah well, while her intestines are in the vase I think from the account I read yes I was going to say it doesn't sound like she's very good at skating if she broke her leg but if, to be honest if she's missing half of her body parts it sounds like well done her for getting up in the morning yeah yeah cool. she, never, she never skated again anyway <laughs> wow sad. Sad that's very funny you still get costume infringements, don't you, in skating? I hadn't realised this. In fact, I knew very little about the figure skating, but you can get points docked for wearing the wrong stuff now. Mm. Well, you used to be able to until, I think, about less than 20 years ago, it used to be that women couldn't wear skirts that came up above like the bum or the hips, so you had to wear a above skirt. Above the bum? Yeah, so sorry. You had that's, to... too se- that's so sexy. It's <laughs> above the bum. That's just having your bum out, isn't it? I don't want to sound like a prude, but I do think there are some good reasons why. Every now and then the phrase, you're not going out looking like that young lady, is appropriate. (laughs) I've misspoken. They had to wear skirts and they had to be below the bum. I should have said it like that. Mm, Um, Yeah, so you would be fined. So you'd have to cover the bum. You had to cover the bum. That's, You'd yeah. have a point docked. Well, you sure. don't anymore. You can wear a leotard, can't you? Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you, your bum is not fully out. There's no, there's no mooning at the, the Olympics. You, I don't know what the rules are on that, but I think you have to cover the genitals. <laughs> Andy's what thinking he might get chopped as one of those detectives. <laughs> <laughs> what a finishing move that would be for your routine. <laughs> Just... Lots of jumps, lots of spins, and a full moon at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> Suck it, guys. So, so on infringements, there was someone at the 2018 Winter Olympics called Gabriella Papadakis whose nipple fell out <gasps> during her performance. A Janet right. Jackson moment. A Jackson moment. When and you she say got fell out, it was just it didn't fall off her body <laughs> <Yeah>. like that. <laughs> they they had an winner. argument. <laughs> they fell out. It and... smelled sweet though. It had the odor of sanctity. <laughs> the detectives rushed onto the ice to collect it <laughs> and put it in a jar. It um it came out really? of her costume wow, and it looks it's like your worst nightmare. Really? But also 
also you're getting points docked not only have you exposed yourself on uh, national television God, you also yeah. get points deducted they still got silver impressively have you heard of the job of the Olympic figure skating poo wrangler <laughs> Jesus Christ no no. no is it Sorry. surely the detective can double up <laughs> is that take but, a scoop okay. on what on earth could this be oh I know. Is uh, it about you... Hanyu, the Japanese guy? Yes, it oh, is. I do know oh. that. Yeah, so yeah, this yeah. is a skater. He's called, yeah, he's Japanese. He's called Yuzuru Hanyu, and he's associated with Winnie the Pooh. As in, he loves Winnie the Pooh, and his fans, as a result, love Winnie the Pooh too. And whenever he skates, they throw Winnie the Pooh stuffed toys onto the ice. That sounds like it would ruin your routine. They throw hundreds. <laughs> it's insane. And there, wow. ha- there was a job the last... I mean, I don't know if it's at every single Olympics, but basically <laughs> there has to be someone who skates around scooping up the Winnie the Poohs. Right. And I shoving watched them him, into a huge I watched Hanyu in this Olympics and there was no Winnie the Poohs there. So maybe because of COVID? It's, or... So, well, Xi Jinping... Is compared oh. to, Xi Jinping is oh, hates yeah. being compared to Winnie the Pooh. I forgot about That's that. Right. Yeah. For some reason, for such a powerful guy, he's pretty thin-skinned about this. <laughs> he doesn't like being compared to Winnie the Pooh. And um, yeah, and so oh, it would have been a big why? problem. Fortunately, foreign spectators have not been allowed into China for this Olympics. So no Winnie the Poohs have been chucked Although on. Although Hanyu's fans are super crazy. Like they really? literally, they're called Fanyu's. And they go around the world just following. Like, if they can get tickets anywhere, they'll go on eBay for thousands of pounds. Like, he's really, really super famous in Japan. But what's weird is I've been to a few sporting events recently. And in most cases these days, you get checked as you're coming in to Mm -hmm. these sort of bigger ones. You have to, you know, if you go even see gigs at like the O2, there's a metal detector and so on. Right. Surely that's the spot to put the poo wrangler. You know, to. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think normally when it's not happening in a state where the totalitarian head of state is compared to Winnie the Pooh and hates it, I'm not talking about current Beijing. <laughs> yeah. I'm talking about any other. Well, I think the they're moment, fine with it. That. Like, so they're fine it's with not, it. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, okay. I think but surely not not a. a no, not Olympic level if you're going for gold he'd be really annoyed surely they'd hold it's back not, it's, not at, it's not at him on the ice oh. it's onto the ice while he's performing it's after he's finished yeah yeah it's not mid-routine yeah okay, okay. but it is apparently off-putting for his opponent so Nathan yeah, Chen who's the other like really amazing <laughs> okay. figure skater male his manager hates it his right. manager thinks yeah. it's like psychological warfare against him he's jealous because he wants a teddy that's yeah. so <laughs> sad that's, that's from Djokovic I wonder if he's been trying to push his own thing like you know Trolls on My Little Pony. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> One sad troll thrown by his manager at yeah, the end. Exactly. <laughs> so the whole thing about the couples doing their dances, I was reading this article where it sort of says, obviously the choreography is amazing, but also what they want is emotion and they want to feel a routine. And so a love story tends to be the thing that you kind of go for. And so a problem that siblings have is that they obviously, it's a bit off if you see a brother and sister kind of doing sort of set. So they have a really odd position where they have to come up with slightly kookier oh, yeah. routines as a result because they can't yeah, they can't be seen to be like almost kissing at the end of a routine. There was yeah. one in this Olympics, I'm not sure if it was brother and sister, it probably wasn't, but one of them was an alien and the other one was someone being um, probed. <laughs> That would still be too sexy for brother and sister, I'm thinking. I think you get the Benny Hill music playing, one of them chasing the other one with a probe. That's 10 points from me. Isn't it interesting? They've never tried the Benny Hill music, to my knowledge. It's too sexual. That's the problem. Yeah. One of the most famous uh, figure skaters of all time, Tonya Harding, at least oh, one yeah. of the most infamous. Mm. Um, I was reading up on her. I never saw that movie with Margot Robbie, oh, but. Hi, uh, Tonya. 
Itonia, yeah. But um, what a pretty extraordinary life that she's led, even post her career. So she got banned as a result of a controversy where she was implicated in harming another skater. What was her name? Nancy Kerrigan. Kneecapping her, wasn't it? It was was her ex-husband hired someone to do it. And what came out through court cases was that maybe she had an inkling that this was going to happen, that they were planning something. Um, That's got her a lifetime ban, basically. But post this happening, she released a sex tape. It was a sort of leaked sex tape, but then she went to Penthouse, I think it was, and or Playboy and said, you can officially release it for an amount of money. Uh, she became a manager for pro wrestlers. She became herself a boxer. She did boxing. She started a band called the Golden Blades. They got booed off stage on their first gig. Oh my God. Um, yeah, she, she's worked as a, as a welder, a painter, <laughs> and a metal... <laughs> yeah, this, is, this yeah. is her career. A, a painter at a metal fabrication company, a hardware sales clerk, wow. a deck builder. Uh, she's she set the automobile racing land speed record. Oh Tonya's God. had a fucking life. She's desperately trying to erase the one thing everyone knows about her. <laughs> Just trying anything. Yeah. <laughs> On her Wikipedia is all these different things, but they still put that at the yeah, top. Exactly. But she was an amazing figure skater. And yeah. when they made this movie with Margot Robbie, there's a scene in it where Margot Robbie has to do a triple axel. And Margot Robbie, who did train to do it, obviously couldn't do it. But they also couldn't find anyone to do it because it's so rare that anyone's ever landed that, that they had to oh, use so CGI funny. in the film. Yeah. She's also amazing at bow and arrow shooting. She, <laughs> she, that, that, there was a piece about her that interviewed her and she goes hunting a lot with her husband, like hunting sort of elk Other and- figure skaters. <laughs> <laughs> elk and such like and um, her husband takes a big gun and she just takes a bow and arrow she says because she wants to give the animal a 50-50 chance to make it interesting and fair although the journalist points out also because felons aren't technically supposed to possess guns in Washington State (laughs) Okay, it is time for fact number two and that is Anna My fact this week is that in the early 1900s, the US government installed telephones at the top of trees. Hmm. What? Cool. Just a convenient place to make a call. Um, This. A a trunk call. Good. Yeah. Is that a thing? That's a very old fashioned term for a very long distance phone call. Yeah. Oh, okay. Would have got a huge laugh in the 70s. (laughs) This is. It was the US Forest Service that started installing them at like turn of the century, early 1900s, and it was for fire lookouts. So it was in like fire prone states like your Arizonas or your Californias and they'd find the tallest tree on top of the biggest hill in the area and then they'd climb to the top or they put a ladder up the tree and then a, a ranger would basically lop off the top of the tree and in its place put a platform there and on the platform is just a telephone and then a guy's job is to sit at the top of the tree and then if he sees a fire he makes a phone call and says fire. Yeah, and they so go and cool. put it out. It's so cool. And sometimes they, what I didn't get was it says sometimes they worked in pairs, and so there'd be two of them up mm. the tree, and one of them spots the fire and then sends the other one to put it out. But I don't understand how one single human being. Yeah, I imagine they weren't these weren't fire. giant forest fires. Yeah, yeah. 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 a small campfire, I suppose. What would you be? You would just if it was small enough, you'd only see a plume of smoke, right? I think as soon yeah. as you mm-hmm. see flames. 
that one guy's not really going to yeah. yeah. appreciate being sent on his own. Yeah. Once the flames are coming out the top of the forest. Yeah. yeah. Were you allowed to use the telephones for other things, like calling your mates and stuff? No or personal they like... phone calls. Oh, oh really? <laughs> they do go through at the end of the month. If your phone record, <laughs> the bill's very high this month. And we don't remember hearing so from you at all. Lots of flyers. Yeah. They're, still, they're still there today, some of them. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. They get called the Freaks of the Peaks. That's one cool nickname they have. The trees. The people are the trees. Oh, the people. The people, I think. Um, But there are not many left. There were 5,000 at most in the 30s, and now there, I think, are a few hundred, maybe 500. I think it went up. I think uh, its peak was the 50s, where there were about 10,000 in the US. Um, But yeah, I think such a cool job, such an interesting kind of person who does that job. You've got to be very happy with your own company. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not if there's two of you up there. That's a good point. But in what? most cases, it's uh, like the lookout, tree, not the tree situation, but other lookouts. Sounds like it was one person the entire time. Yeah, it's most, yeah, yeah. mostly recluse. it does seem to be one person. Um, uh, Jack Kerouac was one of these guys, mm, wasn't he? Was he? Yeah, he was. Um, he spent 63 days as a US Forest Service fire lookout on a place called Desolation Peak. Wow. Sounds fun. Yeah, and um, he went there thinking that he'll be on his own. He only has to look out for fires for a while, so it'll be fine. He can Mm. write some stuff. Uh, But in the end, he wrote only one letter to his mother, some haiku poetry, and a couple of journal entries and no novels. Mm. Well, this I was reading one of the lookouts today who says when new people come to do the job, apply for the job, they imagine they're going to do all this stuff, like write their great novel and learn an instrument, he says. Or you know, they oh my think- God, imagine if you're like the two of you at the top of the thing. You see laughing boy gets his climbing, climbing with the bagpipes. Oh, here we go. You laugh. I, there's genuinely a girl who's learning bagpipes while she does this. Really? I believe is she, she by is herself? one of the solitary ones. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Oh, God. Um, but yeah, he says people tend to get nothing done. Yeah. You actually go and well, you end I'm up. I'm sure. I mean, you always think you're going to get stuff done, and you never do. That's just life. I mm. mean, your job is literally doing nothing. But it's to look. You have to be looking for fires, don't you? You have to be I scanning know. the horizon. You With know, binoculars. You, a little. I feel like smoke. you can look and play the bagpipes at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is one of the things. It's kind of sad that there are all these people by themselves at the top of trees it's a 50 50 split and yet they obviously can't date each other because they're all at the top of trees you know they should themselves. be you know how trees have sex they kind of fire the... they release their seed into the wind <laughs> into the wind they should try that. I'm, sure, I'm sure i'm sure it's been tried i'm sure <laughs> someone's done it <laughs> It gets pretty dull up there. Yeah. We've had some complaints from Doris at the bottom of the tree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, they could do. They did a sort of semaphore way, not a semaphore. They did a way of communicating in the very early days before the phones. What? Yeah, nothing. No, not semaphore. There we go. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> didn't need to happen did it um they had these things called heliographs so the ones that weren't high tech enough to have the telephones in the early 1900s would just have two mirrors and there would be someone and they'd be called the flasher who would um use the mirrors to transmit messages by bouncing the sun off them right and isn't that how you start fires <laughs> That's a great point. It's <laughs> a major flaw in the plan. Um, yeah, I guess you have to be quite careful. I guess if you make sure it's a convex mirror, 
Okay. Um, maybe. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. But yeah, it would uh, reflect the sunlight and they could transmit Morse code up to 70 miles. So we're saying that this is a technology basically, it's not a technology, it's a lack of technology that should be wiped out by now, but it's still going. Mm. And you would think with drones, with satellite imagery, with mm. planes, we wouldn't need this anymore, but it survived because it's the one thing that we can still do when there is an electrical storm and we can't send up drones and mm. we can't get satellite imaging yeah, yeah. through clouding and so on. So it's a job that hasn't died out through the modern technological world which yeah. is yeah. pretty cool they've done a like few studies recently and found that the human observation is as efficient if not more efficient overall than using drones and stuff like that really? cool. exactly like dan says they can't be used in all conditions and stuff yeah. and also they know because it's such a personal attachment they have to the land so often they've been there 30 or 40 mm. years you'll what? get about so they've lived up there so they know every centimeter of the land so yeah, yeah. these people can instinctively spot the tiniest thing wrong but do you think they're like there's a fire where you know where the co-op used to be <laughs> where old Vera used to live yeah just down there yeah it's that a lot of co-ops in yeah. the forest actually they use something called an Osborne fire finder don't they an oh, OFF yeah uh, which is a topographic map so you know like those maps when you go to a tourist place and it shows you where all the things are on the horizon. It's like this building is this oh, yeah, tower, yeah, this yeah. building is like one of those. And then there's a few different things so you can tell exactly where the fire's happening. And that was invented in 1840 by a guy called Sir Francis Ronalds. Um, and he also um, was one of the first people to do electrical signaling. So when he was 28, he put eight miles worth of iron wire on his mother's lawn in Hammersmith <laughs> and managed to send a signal from one end of the eight miles to the other end of the eight miles. It was all kind of yeah, like yeah, yeah. Um, folded up. So he had, didn't go very far in actual terms. Um, but he said after that, he said, why add to the torments of pens, ink, paper and posts? Let's us all have electrical conversazioni offices communicating with each other all over the kingdom. Give me enough material and I will electrify the world. Wow. So he basically invented email. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that amazing? I just sort of imagined him at the end of his garden going like, mum, talk into the wire. And his mum being like, I can just say to you, come in for dinner, talk into the wire, mum. <laughs> I can hear it. So, yeah, you can. You're 10 metres away from me. That's so funny. Um, on the Watchmen thing, but the non-fire related Watchmen oh, yeah. now. So uh, Lausanne in Switzerland has its own Watchman who climbs the bell tower every night and shouts the time. And that's been going since 1405. Mm. They can't have put a clock up there or anything. <laughs> well, they've got, I think they've in also, Switzerland. They, <laughs> <laughs> you're absolutely right. In fact, they've they've definitely got a clock because it's the bell goes and then the the watchkeeper shouts the time and shouts that it's all fine. The watch watcher. <laughs> yeah, shouts that it's all fine. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a rubric that you say, which is, you know, it's 10 o'clock and all is well. Good night. Oh, and not then... like 10 bongs and, yep, it's right again. <laughs> <laughs> I do think they, I think they speak after the bell rings. In fact, they do. The bell rings and then they shout from the four sides of the tower what time it is. Anyway, for the first time. It feels like a redundant job. <laughs> I, I mean, that's, yeah, that's I the son of the it. owner of the bell just trying to find a gig <laughs> for his kid. They've just appointed their first ever female watchkeeper in. 2021 this is in right. after 600 years Huge they've steps. got yeah it is and um there was a big protest of a couple of years ago about the fact that <laughs> no women Christ. have been invited to all be right not because she got the job <laughs> no, 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 oh, no. Right. Okay. no a couple of years ago a lot of women said look we want we want into this <laughs> a sweet gig apparently <laughs> um, and, 
Did we? <laughs> well, they, they had a vacancy last year to join the team, and I think 80% of the applications were from women. I think so. what you want yeah. is a dinner lady. They have the loudest voices in the world, don't they? Yes, and there was a voice test. That was part that of was it. it. Was a sort of they need to test, you know, that you've got a good um, pair of lungs to shout the time. Mm. And the job comes with a little lodge that you can keep mm. warm in, in between bongs, I guess. Mm -hmm. And it comes with a felt hat, a lantern, and a cheese fondue set. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the lodge. That sounds so awesome. Can, right. Pretty Swiss. With those perks, I can really understand why they went for it. <laughs> a felt hat. Yeah. Um, just one more thing, actually, on fire towers that mm. I found so interesting is that this was, I was reading a piece with a lookout called Levi Brinegar. And I do want to say they all have really cool names mm. like that, or like Leif Horgan, all names that sound like they're a forest lookout. But Levi Brinegar um, pointed out that if there's a lightning storm, mm. Uh, you are in the tallest place up oh, the tallest yeah. tree yes. with right. an electric phone line um, that you're oh, supposed shit. to use. Mm. So first of all, they do have a kill switch. They have a kill switch to kill the phone lines if the lightning came too close. Mm. And then if it's really close, they have a stool. And there are a couple of others who all, all had this, a stool where they've just put sort of glasses on each um, leg under the leg to insulate it from lightning so you just go and sit on this one stool in the middle of the oh room and wait for the lightning to pass what wow. is from my lightning? I would have thought the power of a lightning bolt on a tree if it hits it it explodes it it yeah, explodes exactly. it and it doesn't matter if you've got four <laughs> tiny glasses yeah. on the bottom of your chair I think friend of the podcast Roy Sullivan was that his name the guy who was yeah. struck by lightning seven yeah. times yeah. Oh, yeah. I think yeah. one of the times he was hit by lightning was when he was up a fire lookout thing was no it yeah, I yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow. didn't, didn't put his glasses that. under the stool <laughs> no clearly yeah and in fact it wasn't one of the other times when he was being chased by a bear do you remember yes. yeah. Yeah. chased by a bear then struck by lightning yeah he was beating it off with a stick sorry he wasn't let me rephrase that. He was beating the bear with a stick. At well, the time. That's, well, then I don't blame the bear for chasing him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he just wanted to do an ice dance with him. <laughs> okay, it is time for fact number three. That is Andy. My fact is, there is a worm which can grow multiple bottoms, which it then fires off to have sex without it. <laughs> Okay. okay. Yeah. So this is a newly named worm. Very exciting. There were a couple in the same kind of family with the same kind of body shape that were known about already, but this is a new one. Uh, it's called Ramicillus king Gidorahi, which is after a thing from Godzilla. It's one of the other a villain things. It's a villain. I mean, yeah. yeah. I, so I always thought Godzilla was the villain, but anyway, we'll, well come back. We'll get, to that. I'm sure we'll get. I'm sure we'll come to that. <laughs> Basically, this worm is an amazing branching creature it lives in sea sponges it has one head and then the the back end of it branches because it's in the it lives in a sea sponge it branches through all the different tunnels and crevices and mm. paths of the sponge right and then when it wants to reproduce basically the end of each branch of its body and there can be dozens or even hundreds of these branches the end of each one breaks off swims up to the surface independently releases its eggs or sperm into the water column where they'll all find each other um, so they fertilise each other and then the bums die but the head of the worm living in the sea sponge lives lives to breed another day and it starts regenerating all of its, so its bums it's incredible it really is it's just such a weird weird thing I just feel so sorry for the head don't you think that Why? is the worst because you're 
spending your whole life as a face buried in the pitch black belly of a sponge and you're sending off your asses to have sex and you never ever get to do that yourself <laughs> isn't that so weird yes you do have a nice sponge to live in yeah, uh, I guess have they're a quite sponge, sponge bath every but, day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they can't survive the head part. Can't survive outside the sponge. As soon as they go outside the sponge, they die. Oh, it's like the lady of the mm. I bet they sometimes want to. I bet there are a few heads who have gone sod it. I'm going to give it a go. Yeah, like, pop out. That's it's it. so crazy, isn't it? When you think of like, evolution, right? Like mm. it, just the fact that that this thing had to evolve to send its anus off to to go and have the babies. <laughs> you know, while like it was like, what do we do? We can't. My head can't leave this sponge. <laughs> what do I do? These like, um these things that you call bums as well. They are kind of they can be more than bums. They can have like they have very rudimentary brains they have very yeah. rudimentary eyes yeah um so they're like not just a it's, bum no you're oh, absolutely just... right so they're their own <laughs> kind of as it were consciousness even though yeah. i know they're not thinking but they've got their own yeah, yeah they, this have, is the most they have amazing nerves thing. and they they they're called stolons technically yeah. so they're reproductive units but as james says they've got eyes they've got very primitive brains and they, that helps them to steer and to mate mm. i find so, this the most extraordinary thing about yeah. this and almost anything i've ever read in nature that these are basically living creatures that they turn into so every single time they let go of a branch yeah. that they split their organs in half somehow so yes. every organ duplicates mm. so that branch has its own set of organs that it then goes off with Extraordinary. itself. It's so weird. Yeah. So like all of them have um, guts and nerves, and every single branch does. And so when it when a, when it forks, you know the organs fork as well. Yeah. And some of them have been measured. So this is the other the other species, Ramicillus multicordata, which yeah. is just a very similar creature. They've been measured with five hundred different branches. The reason you kind of call them bums is because when they're sticking out of the sponge, yeah. it's the bum bitch which sticking out, right? Yeah. yeah and yeah. the way that they eat is they kind. Of, well, we're not quite sure because no one's ever found any food inside any of them. Wow. It's but insane. It's insane. But what we think is that they dissolve. They kind of soak in the food into their body and then you know there's no stomach or anything like that and then they send out the waste through the bums yeah and then when they become like the thing that reproduces and decides to swim off then a new little anal opening comes where they used to live and then they grow out again constantly <laughs> mooning the world yes. <laughs> um they were found the first one was found in the 1870s and then they didn't find the other two species because there are three species mm. altogether this thing until about 20 years ago oh. and the first one was found on the challenger expedition which i had never read about but is this extraordinary expedition from 18 maybe maybe we've discussed it before but 1872 oh. to 1876 this three and a half year voyage which basically started oceanography and I didn't realise that before that, people didn't care about the oceans at all. Wow. It was it was a big team of people, and it sounds really dull. So Darwin had called the oceans a tedious waste, a desert of water. He was like, there's nothing in here, don't bother with it. So everyone thought that, and then they set off on this expedition. Do you think that's because, you know how Darwin basically lived in England, right? Mm -hmm. And then he went all the way over to the Galapagos, mm. all the way over the sea. Do you reckon people said, what were you doing on the way? Or were you doing fuck all? He was like, oh, it's pointless. I wouldn't do anything anyway. Yeah, yeah. Just see, there's nothing in there. Yeah. He forgot to look in it. Or is it, is it the opposite where he found, he obviously knew how much was in there, but he was just trying to put off other scientists. No, uh, don't, yeah. don't bother looking there. It's just water, mate. Don't yeah. He always went to get to it. Well, they did look there and they collected 4,800 new species and they found the Marianas Trench on that expedition and they started the whole field. This guy who we're talking about with all the bums, mm. the way that he eats by dissolving stuff that is around him basically is how mushrooms live. 
And so um, I read one place that they said that it's basically an animal that has adopted a fungal lifestyle. So it's mm. it's living like a fungus lives, but it's so an animal. Cool. Yeah, it does yeah. seem like that. And actually, other marine worms do that kind of dissolving thing, don't they? There's a worm called the zombie worm, which feeds off skeletons of mostly whales, but other dead ocean animals at the bottom of the sea. And that sends acid out onto the bone, which kind of melts it. Well, wow. it dissol- dissolves it. And then they just live inside whale bones forever and ever. Um, incredible. That is really amazing. I think I read that there are some sponges which have been observed feeding on fossils. As in the fossilized bones oh, yeah. of mm. ancient whales. And it's why the fossil record is really patchy in some places. It's just because down been there, eaten. they've <laughs> been eaten. Yeah. I guess, yeah. I suppose if bones didn't disintegrate, we would just have... Just been knee deep in well, bones. If you, yeah, if yeah. You, actually, like if you looked at the bottom of the ocean, it should just be bones, right? At well, least, at least one is. layer. Is it, it is. really? Well, they get well, they get um, compressed and compressed over time, and they form rock layers, basically. I mean, so chalk, if you look at chalk cliffs, that's all um, the skeletons yeah. of yes. plankton and stuff. Like, that's, that's right. So I suppose bones just turn into what everything else turns into, which is mulch. That's true, but I'm talking. Rock. I think I'm just talking short term. Let's say in like a 50 year period, there must be a lot of sea creatures that die that just do a collection mm-hmm. of bones but they're being eaten by because the, these zombie worms yeah, and things like exactly. that yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. scale worms are another water worm oh yeah and they some of them have this really cool trick so they're a bit like wood lice with the wood lice of the sea so they are have these like hard scales around mm. them and that's so that if something tries to eat them they slough off these scales and the scales end up in the thing's mouth and they wriggle off oh, yeah. brilliant but then sometimes they have scales that produce like bioluminescent light and so something will try to eat it they slough off the scales in the thing's mouth and then the thing's mouth is glowing in the dark (laughs) and then that thing gets hunted by its predator so cool and you're literally in its face (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's clever have you heard of the bobbit worm oh yeah is that the massive one it's huge yeah Mm. it's like 10 feet long it's a iridescent worm it buries its body into the ocean and it sort of just sits there and it sends out these kind of traps like five little antennae that just sit there and if a fish comes along it leaps out it just sort of slithers very quickly and with its jaws um it can snap because the force is so great it can slice a fish in half like it's just like insanely but it then brings it back down into um a hole and they don't fully know what happens next scientists have not any idea really of what happens next because we haven't been able to study it so they don't know if there's a toxin that goes into the Mm. the animal that if they haven't split into two that is still alive that just then kills it and then they can uh, you know ingest it and so on but Mm. well so um, sometimes it's still alive kind of thing yeah because they kill it yeah exactly like sometimes they'll bring something back in that they've just got a good grip on as opposed Mm. to having sliced Mm. and the thought is is that the name although no one's fully sure they think john wayne bobbitt's wife is the inspiration Mm, for i think so um yeah. yeah i think i think that is known isn't it I think that wasn't conclusive. I think it was a sort of nickname given to it, and they sort of, well, at least the places I was reading yeah, yeah. saying we're not fully sure, hmm. because it doesn't it doesn't do anything to your genitals. It's not like it bites your balls off or your slit. No, you know, it doesn't no. slice well, a penis is, off. So we should say this is a famous case of a couple called John Wayne Bobbitt and his Lorena. wife Lorena Bobbitt, yes. and she cut off his uh, penis. Yes, and threw it out of a car. Yeah. Yes. And this isn't what the worm does, but it does seem like too much. There's something a bit. There's something a bit slicey and a bit penisy involved here because it's this worm. Yes, it kind of lives under the sand, 
and then jumps out and grabs you, a bit like the <coughs> worms in Dune, really, I think. Mm. Or um, it is like what's that. that other one? Tremors, a bit like Tremors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. It has been compared to the Mongolian death worm. Yes. Oh. Yeah. And here we are, back on safe <laughs> territory. It doesn't, <laughs> Dan. It doesn't, it hasn't featured in SpongeBob SquarePants yet, has it, this creature? <laughs> no. <laughs> Imagine if, is there an episode of SpongeBob SquarePants where it has one of these bum dividing what? worms in it? SpongeBob gets be. worms. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so a little bit on Godzilla, maybe. Yeah. Yes. Um, he is a Japanese citizen. Uh, <laughs> date of birth: April the ninth, nineteen fifty-four. Reason for special resident: he's got special residency. You'd have to. Yeah, yeah. Um, for promoting the entertainment of and watching over the Kabukicho neighborhood and drawing visitors from around the world. Um, because I know you've been to Japan, Andy. Yeah. Have you seen the giant uh, Godzilla that's sticking out of one of the buildings? I have it's not. really cool. It's next to Shinjuku uh, Station, yeah. You're just walking oh, down wow. the street and you turn around and suddenly there's a massive Godzilla sort of looking over you. That's so Is cool. Is he watching over? Because I thought that he destroyed buildings. Well, I he mean, got. He, yes. He doesn't move because he's just a statue. No, but the idea of Godzilla the, the movie, is the idea the of a very Godzilla. destructive creature, right? I see yes. what you mean, yes. actually. I mean, it's he, it's he a could save you from Mothra yeah. or from whoever this other guy was, King Ghidorah. Ghidorah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a, is know, he it's a, a good guy? It's a complicated relationship because basically, you know, mm. at various points he's been the goody and the heel, and you know, the he, if he's fighting King Kong, for example, what he yeah. as he did in the latest very bad movie. Hang on, they're two completely a, different. Well, you haven't creatures. seen you haven't seen King Kong versus mm. Godzilla, have you? And I gotta say, that's two <laughs> yeah. hours. I'm never getting back because it's. <laughs> What's it about? It's bad, really. <laughs> it wasn't bad. It, I mean, Kong Skull Island is magnificent. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, you keep it's, telling me that. But basically, Godzilla is, is, it can be a goodie and baddie. I mean, very, very destructive of property. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Thank yes. you. Back to that. Okay. Yeah. He can be angered. But he's never on the side of the humans, right? Or is he? He's not really on any side. He's, he's on Kong's, Godzilla's side. He's on yeah. Godzilla's side. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. him. So uh, there's a love story with him. No, that's Kong, isn't it? Faye Dunaway in the 33 movie yeah there's always yeah yeah, that's that's the yeah that's Kong that's Kong that's Kong yeah or Brie Larson in Kong Skull Island yeah sure okay actually they don't really have a relationship in the same way that Kong and Faye Dunaway did I would say Andy Mm. when you're on Mastermind and they say what's your specialist subject if you do choose Kong and Godzilla, don't just give a fucking monologue as soon as he asks his first question, because you're going to run out of time. The thing about Skull Island is, though, <laughs> it's a brilliant Vietnam War metaphor. The whole movie, it's incredible. I started and finished a long time ago, Andrew. <laughs> Okay, it's time for our final fact of the show, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that comedian Lenny Bruce was arrested so often during his sets that he would go on stage wearing his coat just so he was ready to leave with the police immediately. Brilliant. Go on. Yeah, so this is a fact that I learned in a brilliant autobiography that was written by George Carlin, who is also one of the greatest stand-ups that we've ever had. It's called Last Words. Highly recommend anyone who's interested in the world of comedy reading it. And this was on a night in 1962 when Lenny Bruce was playing at a club called The Gate of Horn. And during the performance a police officer stood up in the middle of the crowd and he basically shut down the show 
and he immediately arrested Bruce and he tried to take him to jail. So Carlin's bit of this story is that he was upstairs having a drink with another comic and they weren't only just arresting Lenny Bruce, they were also arresting anyone else that they could because they wanted to make a real point about this happening, this gig. So they ID'd uh, everyone who was at the show to see if there were any minors there to see if they could arrest them, if anyone was too young Mm -hmm. to be there. They arrested the owner and the bartender because drinks were being served during the set which was not allowed and they ended up arresting as well George Carlin who was upstairs and refused to give his ID and started making a joke out of it because he was quite drunk so George Carlin ended up in the van the police van with Lenny Bruce and so he was there specifically for this moment Lenny told him he would wear his coat while he was on stage because sometimes the police would just take him out immediately and he wouldn't be able to get his coat and he loved his coat because it was made from a really nice cashmere and he didn't want to be parted with it so that's why he wore it on stage all the time i saw that he he went to prison um they bailed him out right and he was back on stage by something like 1 a.m for the second show of the night (laughs) Um, when he was on stage he did a joke by saying i better keep my coat on because i may have to go out again so he kind of made a point of the arrest as well yeah do we know how long into the set the policeman waited? Did he wait for him to do all his favourite jokes and then stand up? Or did he just give him 10 you seconds? wait until he said something really rude. It was then... Yeah, it was the moment he said ah. something rude. So Lenny Bruce is, if you haven't heard of him as the listener of this show, he was a 1960s comedian. The listener? Who... We have more than one listener. <laughs> <laughs> I just have Sorry, I have one listener. The rest of you have, you have millions. I've, <laughs> I've got one dedicated listener. Um, he, was, he was basically in a way the first modern stand-up comedian and there were a lot of comedians before him obviously and you can say people like bob hope and so on who'd go around on stage telling jokes but they were very much joke merchants they had a team of writers who were writing for them lenny bruce was the first person to really talk about his personal life he used swear words he he talked like a real person basically and that was like stream of consciousnessy type stuff rather than just gag 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 yeah, well, right? they, yeah and they were but they were written it was written material as well but he was basically counterculture America. Mm-hmm. He was part of the Beat people. So Jack Kerouac, who was mentioned before, very much part of that scene. And he opened up the whole industry of stand-up to this new way of doing it. What came with that is he spoke about very controversial topics. He spoke about religion, which he really didn't like. He used swear words on stage, yeah. which no one was doing at this time. And so he was constantly being arrested for these reasons. And um, he became a sort of martyr to the whole of the comedy industry because he yeah sorry well no we should say that he was pardoned as well which is great news so he was convicted of obscenity but then he was pardoned in this one right uh well he so this is when he was tried in 1964 for obscenity and and prosecuted but the good news is that he he was pardoned and it it was in 2003 that he was pardoned that's right he had been dead for nearly 40 years but but, um there was a petition to um cancel it so the the governor of New York was George Pataki, who in 2003 granted this posthumous pardon. The petition was brought by a couple of comedians I'd never heard of uh, called Tom Smothers and Dick Smothers, oh, yeah. known as the Smothers Brothers, <laughs> who themselves were cancelled and, you know, pr- and properly cancelled because they were very lefty. And that was obviously yeah, yeah. also uh, pretty controversial. Yeah. The US so he wasn't found guilty in the event that Dan was describing. Uh, okay, he was yeah, yeah. got off there. His um, defence compared him to Aristophanes Rabelais and Jonathan Swift 
what? in the court case and the jury agreed and they let him off no. and then he was later arrested quite a lot of times mm. in lots of different places but in New York was the big famous one which is what you're talking about yeah he got, yeah yeah I think I agree with the judge, right? I don't don't know Rabelais, come on, you're not that pretentious. But Aristophanes and Swift, kind of impenetrable, desperate wannabe satirists, apparently genius, but actually not that fun to experience. I would say it's quite a good description of Lenny Bruce. Wow. For me. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Le- For me. You Jonathan live- Swift is very funny. And some of the Aristophanes stuff is yeah. great. I, I, love, I love the level, Anna. How can you be at a level where you're pretentious enough to know Aristophanes and Jonathan Swift, but no, I'm not pretentious is enough to know Rabelais. <laughs> God, we all know that's the line, okay? <laughs> You've crossed the line when you wow. know Rabelais. I mean, he, he represented himself in court at various points, so that might have been the point where he was being compared to Jonathan Swift and Aristophanes. So <laughs> yeah. he, he, he fired his lawyer halfway through this trial, the 1964 one. Um, and then the New York Law Journal refused to publish the judgment because it contained offensive words. Mm. So Right. Mm. And then yeah. just going back to the original one that you were talking about, Dan, he, I was reading the... Uh, newspaper articles from the day and from the day after and stuff and he did his second show and then he went back to his hotel the Clift Hotel and then he got kicked out of this hotel because the hotel owner had heard about him being arrested and didn't want his like in his hotel and so he just got kicked out into the street and as a result from then on he performed always with a small suitcase (laughs) on stage (laughs) (laughs) he um, did like a spot of morphine heroin yes Yes. and um, actually he was ejected from another hotel once for blocking its toilet with heroin needles and or for blocking its toilet with needles needles, isn't it (laughs) (laughs) it's not like toilet roll it's like maybe it only takes a couple of needles to block a loo I've never never tried it but there was another time he was (laughs) I promise (laughs) we've been on tour with you we know you are a needle toilet blocker the number of premier inns we've been unceremoniously kicked out of I'm sorry about that, but I have changed. Um, he was he was another thing I do on tour, actually. He was kicked out of another hotel for apparently conducting a nocturnal trio of blondes in an original composition, the chorus of which ran, Please Fuck Me, Lenny, in three-part harmony. Wow, in harmony. <laughs> in harmony. And actually, at a premier own, you wouldn't be allowed to do that because they have their good night's sleep policy. <laughs> all those yeah. signs saying shh yeah. on the corridors that's why it's Lenny Henry who's their mascot and not Lenny Bruce <laughs> it was a toss up wasn't it <laughs> um, but yeah he had, he had no. a big old sexual appetite and Did he, uh, he uh, yes. married a stripper called Honey Harlow yes yeah. but as you say Anna like you don't think he's funny and a lot of people absolutely agree with you he has to be looked at as someone who is just the person who paved the way and who, mm. you know, Richard Pryor, who is seen by many as the funniest person ever, says that Lenny Bruce was the funniest person ever. George Carlin as well. Lenny mm. Bruce was the funniest mm-hmm. person ever. Modern day comedians like Mark Maron, Lenny Bruce, funniest person yeah. ever. Michael I McIntyre. respect him a lot. Michael McIntyre. <laughs> you can see the influence so much in McIntyre's <laughs> material. Um, but they did, they did a, uh, on the 50th. 50- I like, can I just say I like Michael McIntyre? I don't even know Absolutely. why I said that. It's just the first name that came into my head. They're just not similar. However much you like either of them, I don't yeah. think Michael McIntyre would claim that he's taking after Lenny Bruce. But I'm does. just saying if Michael McIntyre wants me on his BBC um, primetime show I'm sorry <laughs> but he does block a lot of uh, hotel toilets with heroin needles that's a McIntyre thing isn't it it's kind it of is. his trademark yeah <laughs> uh, but on the uh, 50th anniversary of his death they did a screening of one of his 
recorded stand-up shows to an audience of fans and uh, just to you know mm. commemorate him uh, it was 40 minutes of jokes and uh, hardly anyone laughed according to the article and that makes wow. sense he yeah. was a he yeah, was a conscience yeah. he's the one that you go when you're watching him you go ah you sort of smile and you're oh, like, like oh. Stuart Lee. That's certainly a bit of stupidity. Yeah. To him. <laughs> Is there anyone left? Let's just destroy <laughs> anyone we might work with in the future. There was oh. a brilliant article in Playboy that um, he um, that was quoting him in 1963, and he was talking about when. Um, he was going on stage and the owner decided to introduce him but was really worried that he was going to get a bad reaction and so the owner said ladies and gentlemen the star of our show Lenny Bruce who incidentally is an ex-GI and a hell of a good performer folks and he's a great kidder you know what I mean it's just a bunch of silliness he doesn't mean what he says (laughs) the kids and the Pope and the Jewish religion honestly it's just a make-believe world it's fine he's a hell of a nice guy folks and he was at a veterans hospital today doing a show for the boys and here he is and by the way his mum's out there tonight too (laughs) she hasn't seen him in a couple of years and she lives here in the town now a joke's a joke right folks what the hell I wish she'd try and cooperate and whoever has been sticking ice picks in the tyres outside that's not funny is this real that's real that's That's the best intro ever funny that's really good I feel like he must have written it for them did he yeah that's so good his mum interestingly was his main inspiration and she was really awesome she was this woman called Sally Ma and Mm. she was a stand up comedian Mm. Well, before stand-up was a thing really in the 30s and 40s and she imp- did impersonations I think was part of her comedy like she impersonated Humphrey Bogart and James Cagney and people like that yeah. and she-, she she introduced him on stage for his first ever show oh did she well his his first big break he was uh, in a radio show called Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts oh. and uh, she she was the hype woman for him she was she was a manager also later in her career oh, yeah. yes so she she managed who i did not know was a stand-up comedian but the man who played mr miyagi from the karate kid movies pat oh, yeah. morito was a stand-up before he became a sort of uh, more serious actor and yeah she managed him really um, yeah cool. he had a brief act didn't he walks on walks off beautiful <laughs> that is beautiful <laughs> lenny bruce actually he only ever performed once in the UK. It was in London and it was on Greek Street in central London in Soho Mm -hmm. and it was at the Establishment Club which was created by Peter Cook of Beyond the Fringe and it was... The establishment was set up basically because they wanted to try and give acts the opportunity to try the stuff that was censored. At this point in the UK, if you were performing, it was part of a theatre show and the Lord Chamberlain had veto over every script that would be um, performed. So they'd go through it and say, you can't say this and you can't say this. But in private establishments, you were allowed to do that. And so Peter Cook set up this place and that is how Lenny Bruce came to the UK for his one and only trip uh, because he was deported uh, the second time round. He wasn't allowed in. Um, And by all accounts it was quite a bad run of gigs <laughs> um he was pretty ill at that point in terms of the drug taking this story you mentioned about the um the women and the syringes that was uh-huh. in london where that uh. happened and um peter cook himself who was a massive fan of his went and picked him up from the airport and um he said that he just met this shambling guy coming out at the arrivals he got into the car and he was holding a record player um, a sort of miniature tape recorder and he insisted on playing his tapes all the way on the journey back and the tapes consisted of nothing but airplane noises and grunting and farting that was it and Peter <laughs> Cook just thought what okay. the hell is going on here and yeah and so he came and he performed in London well, well, what was going on 
he doesn't really know like peter oh. that, like peter cook just he basically what he had was a junkie in the back of the car and, and it's that classic junkie behavior playing fart noises over a tape <laughs> layer which hadn't been invented yet but no but yeah. he might have been like there was there's accounts of lenny bruce making car stops because he saw like a field of flowers just so he could run and lay in them and then get back in the car and they didn't realize That's at the lovely. time he was doing heroin yeah. and and that was that was him just it was a field of poppies, poppies Okay, that's it. That's all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. James. At James Harkin. And Anna. You can email podcast.qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or our website, no such thing as a fish.com. Check out all of our previous episodes, which are up there. Check out our merchandise as well, including the book that we put together for the tour, which is now selling online. It's a sort of history of fish with lots of random fun things. Check By it the way, out. When you say fish, it's us. It's not like a history of the, the you know, dictionary of underwater. Lake. No, no, no. I've uploaded my new my new fish book. Yeah, uh, turns out there is such a thing. Um, so yeah, no, do check that out and uh, come back next week. Listen to us again because we'll be back with another episode and we'll see you then. Goodbye. Bye.